The Chronicles of Leadership Chapter 6 Visitors to a Sickbed John Keane That's me finished. The surgeon unpicked her latex gloves and dropped them into a receptacle. Did I hear her say that? When? Was it earlier today? Or months ago? If only I could be sure. I refocus on a disturbing news item coming from the little TV screen above my bed. A cricket match is about to start halfway around the world. The caption says at the Kowloon Cricket Club, Hong Kong. A former England captain strides out onto the field, but not in cricket gear. He's dressed in a nutty cream outfit and matching trilby. He's now a celebrated TV and radio commentator. He's about to report on the state of the wicket for a one-day tournament. As I watch, something dreadful happens. Geoffrey Boycott, for it is he, turns to camera, crouches down and plunges his car key into the pitch to demonstrate the playing conditions. But at that moment, he himself lurches forward and passes away on the spot. It seems he has sustained a massive heart attack. Medical assistants rush on with emergency equipment and stretcher and erect white screens around the prone figure. I watch reports throughout the day as the sad story unfolds. The tributes from his fellow cricketers around the world are fulsome. In the evening, something almost as strange happens. There is no mention of his passing anywhere in the evening news bulletins, even in the Manchester Evening News. Brought me by Susie Yup, my journalist friend and most regular visitor. No one else seems to know or care about the story either. I'm beginning to wonder if there is a conspiracy of silence. Maybe he is still alive and in a vegetative state. Hospitalisation and large doses of medication have severely influenced my grasp of reality. Had I really seen the untimely demise of the famously pungent cricket commentator, Sir Geoffrey Boycott? Perhaps the side effects of medication are now producing delusional episodes. It took me a few days. It took me a few days to establish that Boycott had indeed been in Hong Kong to commentate on a cricket match. He might even have marched out to the wicket, car key in hand, to probe the nature of the playing surface. But the subsequent events did not take place. This is fortunate for Boycott, but another setback for me. I accept I'm still not completely free from delusional episodes. Then there was the sighting of a terminally ill chief rabbi in the hospital. After that, there was the wounded gunman with police guard in the men's ward, recently rushed in from accident and emergency. But the most recent and most disturbing memory is one I have never mentioned to anyone. Not even Susie Yup, when she came to see me for a game of chess. This is now my new home from home. What, when was it I was admitted? Can't remember. When will I be discharged? Sometime in the future. Location. I know that. The Salford and Ermston Royal Hospital, the Mayo Clinic of Manchester, a veritable medical theatre of dreams. 
Down the road and in earshot on a match day is Old Trafford Football Stadium, home of Manchester United and also known as the Sporting Theatre of Dreams. Susie Yup visits regularly. And there was another person who came to see me once. Susie Yup was there at the time and she can confirm it really happened. My new visitor was Dr Tiscothic, head of Meniscus Laboratories and my old boss. I have much to thank him for. He continues to fund my contract at Ermiston through Dr Beamer's efforts every year. He arrived last Wednesday afternoon. Or maybe it was last Friday. One or the other for sure, because we joked about the quality of the custard, which is always served here on Wednesdays and Fridays. You should start a new division at Meniscus making appetising and nutritious custard, I said. You already have the people you need with all those flavourists and food technologists you have hired. Maybe you would like to head it up, he replied. Head of custard. I'll have a word with Mifflin when I get back. I assume you will want double your salary before returning from Emerson University. That was typical of his dry humour. He was referring to a humorous remark I made at my leaving do, saying I would stay if he would let me take over his job. I refrained from referring to my added comment at the time. I would also expect him to transfer Deirdre, his super-efficient and much-admired personal assistant, to work for me. I realised with a flash of insight that Susie Up, listening to our banter, would not have appreciated the comment about Deirdre. Tiscothic could have passed as a clinical consultant on war duty. He was dressed in an appropriately civilian suit, although his gaunt appearance made him look more like an anorexia patient. Notice the stiff colour of his white shirt was a size too large, and that his hairline had receded even further since I'd seen him. When he smiled, his teeth were discoloured and somewhat too large for his jaws, marrying the otherwise patrician appearance found on Roman statues. Things going well at Meniscus, I asked, struggling for small talk. Well, as well as ever. He was not totally convincing. What was it the politician said? Events, dear boy, events. There are a few too many events which I'm having to deal with at present. I wondered what they were, but he did not explain further. After a few minutes he left. His brief visit seemed to have fatigued him as much as it had me. Susie Yup took out her pocket chess set, the one with magnetic pieces. I was too tired to play more than one game. I made several blunders, and her play was also surprisingly error-prone. We were both too proud to take moves back. I concealed from Susie Yup what I believed to be one of the most important and confusing of my experiences. It was during a period when I had been screened off, plugged into a drip-feeding system, unable to speak. Outside my tented prison was a world of chaos. Indistinct voices were raised in argument, and also the hum of medical apparatus. I wanted someone to turn down the lights and quieten the voices. I rattled my pillbox to attract the night nurse. A figure appeared at the foot of my bed, but it was not a nurse. He was dressed in a manner of a distinguished Edwardian gentleman. He loomed at the foot of the bed, rather as Tuscothic had. I was looking up at the lofty figure of none other than one of my greatest intellectual heroes, the economist and statesman John Maynard Keynes. I recognised him from the famous frontispiece to biography of the great man. 
My anxieties about the noises outside were replaced by a great calm. Unless I had been transported back in time about 70 years, this is no more than a particularly vivid dream. Sometimes you can force yourself awake. But try as I might, I couldn't do that. It's all right, old chap, he said gently. Everything's going to be all right. Don't give up now. He had the most musical and persuasive of voices. I knew what he was talking about. It related to the advice the old man had given me. Your conundrum, I said. I never thought of it as a conundrum, he replied. More a dilemma. You did well to find out what I concealed from so many for so long. That is why you have been chosen to tell the world about it when the time is right. As the light faded, I fell into an untroubled sleep. In the morning, the modesty tent around me had been removed. I was wheeled back to the little community tucked away behind the main men's ward. I lay there, appreciating the familiar mid-morning sounds and smells of the hospital, mostly thinking about Keynes and his secret I had been charged with revealing to the world. <laughs>